Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton. Today I'm with Theo Davis-Lewis, who is actually the youngest person that I've had a conversation with on a podcast. He's just 20, but he's already made quite a remarkable impact. I remember, Theo, you contacted me a few years ago when you were at school at uh, Llandovery College. When did you get in, interested in politics? You bring back these memories now, Martin, straight away. Um, yeah, I remember emailing you just after the referendum in Scotland, I think. Uh, that's when I first started getting into politics. I, I'm not from a political family. Uh, my mum's a florist, and generations before her, uh, there were florists in the family. What's your dad do? Uh, he's a HR director, so not very interesting either. <laughs> but no, not really political at all. And basically, during that referendum, I started thinking about politics. I remember sitting in the common room uh, in college and watching the referendum. I was the only one watching it, to, to be fair. Uh, but that's when I started getting into it, and then after that, emailing you about my ideas about you know politics and how young people can get into it a bit more. Yes, I think at that time you were very preoccupied with the thought of getting more young people involved in politics. What do you think it has been that has stopped more younger people getting interested and getting involved? Well, there's a few things recently you can pick up on. There was a, I think it was an article in The Spectator, uh, surveyed on how much it actually costs to stand as an MP. Not sure if it's the same uh, for Wales, and there's focusing on Tory MPs, but I think the cost of it actually is another thing. Why should you commit to public life, getting scrutinised, criticised on a daily basis, and not getting you know that much money where you could make much more money in the city or something? If you look at um, the cost of getting involved in politics now, I think it's gone up quite a lot. There's been a few recent surveys uh, about that, but also it's the scrutiny and the criticism you get, I think. Uh, when you go into politics. There's many jobs you can do now as such a diversified market. Same with journalism, really. I think they're so volatile, there's no job security. And I think now young people are far more astute and looking at how they can have careers. Maybe I should be a bit more like that. But I think there's not been enough bodies, there's not been enough engagement from you know, politicians with young people generally. And a lot of people say that. People just brush that away. But it is true. And I think that's particularly the case with devolution we've seen in Scotland. There's been this huge engagement, like with the referendum, uh, whereas in Wales we really haven't had a moment or a process or you know elections that have engaged us to a significant extent, I don't think. Because I think you were actually pushing the idea of having a, a young assembly, weren't you? Mm. And I think they're still working Well, they're doing that. it now. They're doing it. They're doing a youth parliament. I don't, and I should say, I don't take credit for that happening. Uh, I think I played my uh, small part in it because I think... What I did is I remember emailing you talking about some proposal I'd written to the First Minister, of course rejected now. You know, it probably wasn't the best written uh, proposal I've ever done. But really I think what I was doing, which is a bit different to most people, is that I was happy to go and talk to journalists and sit in front of a camera as a 16-year-old or as a 17-year-old. And that's why people picked up on it. And now I think they are doing youth parliament soon. Uh, there's elections happening. So 
that's great. I think that's one particular body that can be useful. There's talk about voters 16 as well. But I think really if we look at young people like me who are not you know, 14, 15, but are 20 years old, you know, should I be going into politics? What's the incentive for me? Is there a party for me? I don't think right now uh, there is. Because uh, I remember thinking at the time when you were putting that idea forward that you seem to be preoccupied with politics, but more recently you've become more interested in the media as such, mm. haven't you? Is that because you haven't actually found a party that represents what you believe? I mean, what what are your core beliefs? That's a very good question, actually, and that makes me think about my whole life for the last five years. Uh, I really thought about politics from that point in time. But what happened since then, I think I really enjoyed doing the media stuff. So I did loads, I've done loads of platforms. And I think it was more the side of me as a person changing my personality. I was more curious about the world rather than, you know, let's develop a policy that does this or what, that this, this or that. I was thinking more about different stories, different ideas about journalism. My core beliefs, I think I'd say I'm pretty socially liberal, um, maybe even a conservative with a small c. Uh, but I think now it's very difficult for me to find a party, particularly you know, if I am left or centre or whatever, that's what I'd probably say I am that would actually take me. Uh, I don't think that I'm the sort of person to go into politics after university because it doesn't really suit my creative stuff I do, like I've done you know, before I went to Oxford and during Oxford and what I'm doing now as well. And, of course, uh, the thing is, if you nail your colours to a particular mast, it makes it more difficult to become a broadcaster, doesn't it? Mm. Because I know that, um, uh, well, some extremely well-known broadcasters get extremely touchy if you... Uh, have a word with them and say, do you have any plans to mm. go into politics? I mean, I'm, that's uh, occurred to me when people have said to me, I won't name anybody in particular, but when it's been suggested to me that a particular broadcaster might be interested in going into politics because of some comments that they were said to have made at a public event, which were picked up and then passed back, and then you tackle them about it, they get very heated because mm. they know that as soon as they say that they've got any kind of political aspiration, uh, that's going to finish their broadcasting career, essentially. Mm. So mm. Yeah. Is, that in, is that a consideration for you? Well, I think so. I, I think I've decided already that it's either the broadcasting route or the politics route generally. It won't be sort of you know, politics straight away. I think I've decided that I'm leaning towards that now, really, because um, you know, in Oxford now I've done loads of different things. I, I'm doing this interview, doing TV stuff all the time. It's fun. You know, it gives the ego a bit of a boost, but... At the end of the day, for me, I think that if you have some sort of skill or you have a conviction and you believe in different things and you think you can change it, uh, I think it's good to go along and nail for that route. It might not work out. You know, I could, it's very good for me to say, oh, I'd like to be an MP or I'd like to be a campaigner. It might not happen. But it's just whether I'm happy after I leave Oxford to do things like PR or something like that, which, is, which I've done this summer um, when you see the dark arts working. But you really find out, really, that the media itself is not independent from these companies. You know, I was working with Portland Communications in London, and you see the influence that organisations like that have, not only over the media, but particular organisations and companies that are corporate, and they run the place, really, good or bad. So I think there is a separation there. I know there's a few leadership candidates now that have been broadcasters or whatever, lots of politicians in the Assembly that have been in journalism and broadcasting. Obviously you, former parliamentary candidate as well. Um, but I think uh, I've decided that politics is more sort of the end game, I think, for me. Mm. Going back 
Um, you're quite unusual in the sense that you went both to a uh, an independent school, but then I think for your A levels you went to a state school. Is that right? I was well. I uh, well, I think I am unusual because of my education, and I think people don't pick up on it usually. Thank God. Uh, but I went to a local Welsh language primary school first of all. I think that's important because that means I'm a fluent Welsh speaker. And that was in Flanetti. That was in Flanetti, Dewi Sant. Uh, fantastic school. And then I went to Stradi, comprehensive for a year, and had that scholarship then to Llandovery after that for five years. And then I went to another independent school, my sixth form, in St Michael's School uh, in Flanetti. And people don't normally assume that if you're a Welsh speaker that you're a posh boy or a privately educated student. My parents never thought they'd have to send me there. My education, I think, has completely changed me as a person and the way I look at things as well. That's what makes it more difficult, actually, to comment politically, because people will just throw those things like you, particularly in Wales, where you know, I don't think there's many people in public life at all, or even journalists, that are privately educated in Wales. Um, you know, it's not a sad thing to say, but it's just that it's just all I've got to deal with. How was it that you came to go to a private school then? Well, my parents never thought they'd have to send me there, but they really weren't happy with the education I was getting at a secondary school level. You know, my parents, my, my grandfather was a miner in the South Wales Valley, so that's where my dad's from. Uh, my mum, you know, as I said, local sort of grocery, floristry business, not you know, stuck up upper class, sort of lower middle class, I'd say, um, if there are any class values or differentiations in Wales. But I think it was just that there was uh, an acknowledgement from them that they wanted me to do really well, and I think I've done okay so far um, by sending me to the best school possible. And I think... You know, I have to deal. I have to deal with it. It's uncomfortable sometimes. I think, especially because I'm in Oxford. Most of my friends are from top, top, top public schools, and I sort of, I can fit in with them very nicely. Whereas the Welsh students there, I don't really have much of a relationship with, which is a bit strange. Because, as you touched on, a lot of people in politics in Wales, for whom private education is an, is anathema, would see you as a sort of posh boy who has. Um, got privilege as a consequence of going to a public school and that this is really something which is outdated and yeah. is, is wrong. How do you cope with that? Well, you know, I think there is often people that put that aside and people just look at you and respect you and things I've done recently, which I'm sure we'll touch on, I think people think it's actually quite embarrassing for them as people that this posh boy, in inverted commas, has gone out and done all these different things. It's the same with the youth parliament. It was that they had to take a posh boy um, to go out and do something like that. And I think I cope with it because I don't wear that posh boy tag or that private school tag with pride. It's not something I'm embarrassed by. It's just I have to live with it. I do think, though, that there's it's, it's, it's a shame that the education system in Wales, not everywhere, you know, I wouldn't say you know, every school in Wales is rubbish uh, because I know that there's many good schools in Wales. But I think it doesn't actually give a fair chance to many people in Wales. And you can look at the numbers applying to top universities, look at the Oxbridge numbers, and you know there will come a point, I think, that there will be a government here that actually takes responsibility for the results in education in this country. I know that Wales Online have been reporting a lot about you know PISA scores and you know everything that's going on since devolution. And I think at the end of the day, you can't really keep blaming teachers or certain schools or what the format of the school is. It's the politicians that you know set the funding, whether it's influenced by Westminster or not, that's another matter, uh, and actually determine how good those schools are. And I think, you know, for me, I, I'm really passionate about education. I think that I benefited from a traditional English education. I think in Flintshire, uh, and I'm not, you know, embarrassed by that. I think I had that Welsh 
tradition still with me and that's why I still speak Welsh fluently. But I do think that there needs to be a shift in you know, how young people are taught in this country. Because there are those in the Conservative Party in Wales, as well as in England, who would argue for a return of grammar schools. Would you go along with that? I'm not sure about that. I think, you know, that's something I talked to my mum about because uh, there's a lot of people in Llanelli that remember the Llanelli Boys Grammar School, a very famous school. I think people like um, the historian Diane Hopkins uh, went there. Uh, I've been speaking to him recently and he's um, a really nice chap. I think it was it's an outdated format, maybe. You could say the same about private schools, but I think the private school element, element uh, eliminates unfair is, is unfair because it's the financial side whereas the grammar school side is unfair because it separates people based on their intellect so it's a it's such a difficult case to argue i think but really i wouldn't even look at looking at another option in terms of the format of the school i think if you've got comprehensives how can you make them better should you have a thousand people in one school probably not so you're at oxford what are you studying at oxford uh, archaeology and anthropology a bit weird <laughs> because i i've never done archaeology or anthropology before i went to oxford you know, really, for me, uh, I get in trouble for saying this, it was just a way for me to get in. I didn't think I'd get in uh, by doing something like history or politics. I thought I was way out of my depth because I thought I would just not be looked at. And I would say I wouldn't do any other degree now because it's very interesting. But I don't think I'll be digging much when I'm older, Martin. Mm. And anthropology as well. Mm. Um, what have you learnt? Lots and lots of things, of course. Um the best thing I think I've learned so far, really, with anthropology is actually how it can be integrated into different things that I do. It's all about people. And my dissertation is focusing on uh, BBC Radio, actually. And that's something that no other person I know in Oxford can do a dissertation on. And that's how flexible anthropology is. So I'm going off to Manchester uh, in the next couple of weeks to do some research there on the concept of time. And it really has shown me, at the end of the day, that humans... Yes, there's lots of conflict... But at the end of the day, they want to work together. And that's something you can see throughout human history and perhaps reflect my own political belief generally. Sometimes it seems that conflict is at the centre of things, doesn't it? I mean, at the moment, we've got this uh, Brexit stuff going on, which is um, extremely conflictual. And uh, I mean, politicians have told me that the Brexit referendum campaign was the worst campaign that they've been involved in, in from the point of view of courtesy and from the point of view of being able to have a civilised debate. There was a lot mm. of abuse going on as a consequence of that. And actually, I was talking just yesterday to Jack Sargent, who, of course, is mm. Assembly Member for Allen and Side, who took over from his late father, who has spoken about the need for a greater degree of courtesy, kindness and civilised conduct in political discourse, which seems to have gone away to a certain degree because of social media. I mean, mm. do, you, do you see, I mean, as a young person, uh, young people are supposed to be fascinated by social media and see it as a, as a, as a, a great benefit to humankind. Uh, do you see the downside of it as well? Of course. You know, you look at the downside of social media in every single aspect. I use Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. You know, I've never been the subject of much abuse at all on there. But I think it, it all goes back to sort of humans and mental health and particularly young people now. I think young people, especially in politics, we've seen stuff recently with, I think, Hillary Benn's daughter being cascaded, really, on Twitter for you know, calling out anti-Semitism or whatever. And I think it is a responsibility of these parties to take action over it. The anti-Semitism stuff in Labour, I think, has been quite distasteful generally. And I think 
we're at this point now in politics where you don't really see what the solution is at first glance. Um, and that is a huge problem. But what I'd also say, though, and I think it's important, particularly when we look at the Welsh Assembly, how things are done there. I don't think there's much, there's not enough conflict, really, um, in terms of um, theatre uh, debates. I think, you know, we're still shrouded by the death of Carl Sargent. We're still shrouded by you know, allegations of Welsh government bullying. But it would be nice, I think, to see a bit more debate happening in the Welsh Assembly. Every single person I've spoken to recently, whether they're young or old, just doesn't doesn't care. And I think a bit of conflict is fine, but as long as it's not uh, attacking anyone personally and uh, causing a lot of controversy, uh, which affects people uh, emotionally. So at Oxford, you have restarted this media society, yeah. haven't you? And you've already got some quite distinguished people involved and... Alan Rusbridger, who's a former long-serving editor of The Guardian, is involved in that, and of course he's, what is he, the, the principal? principal of Lady Margaret Hall, sort of master-in-chief master uh, of the college. Um, so yeah, um, getting involved with people like that uh, in Oxford is a bit uh, different. I think that was something that is quite unique generally, you know, so people just sort of denigrated as a, a student society. I think what's different with it is that it's not been set up by an Etonian or a you know, these traditional people you see in Oxford is, at the end of the day, it's a Tlenetli boy that set this society up, got 25 patrons to fund us and give us money, five members of the House of Lords, people like Lord Patton, um, you know, Lord Grey, former BBC uh, chairman, and getting people like that involved has made me think a bit more about the media, not just in Oxford and the UK, but also here in Wales, and looking about these different ideas, uh, and John Humphreys is our first speaker of next term coming up now, and it's been a a really, really interesting way for me to see things differently, I think. Uh, some people you invite you don't agree with, you don't like. I certainly don't anyway. But it's made me think a bit more about the media and the issues that we have with it. I think there's lots of problems in terms of bias or inaccurate reporting. But also there's good things that we should make better. Alan has written a book recently, I think, on breaking news. And I think the gist of what he's saying it really is we don't really need to completely reinvent journalism in this medium, but actually just get journalism right in the first place and adapt it to the digital age. I don't know many titles that are doing that in the best possible way. The Guardian, of course, decided quite a few years ago that it was going to be digital first. It was mm. one of the first publications to do that. And it's actually found itself in a tricky situation, hasn't it? Because it's very difficult to make money out of digital journalism. And what you now get, of course, on The Guardian at the end of every story you read is a begging message asking you to sign up essentially as a sponsor of Guardian's mm. journalism. Do you think that that is a reasonable business model and will it be a successful one in the future? Well, I was listening to a, a talk by Mark Thompson, uh, chief executive of The New York Times, and he was saying that something along the lines that he doesn't think there'll be a print edition of The New York Times in about 10 or 20 years' time. And... It's probably the same case here when you look at the UK. I think print is declining. We can see that across West Wales, really. My local paper, the Tenetti Star, you know, I, I don't think they actually have offices in Tenetti anymore. Uh, and it's such a sad thing to see, but it's something that we have to deal with. It's reality. And I think, you know, with The Guardian, they do need to have a sustainable business model. I think, you know, when Adel Alan was editor of The Guardian, there's lots of controversy around what he did. I think it was a bit of a split 50-50 with people that thought he was a genius and then people thought he was completely mad uh, financially. Uh, it's probably a bit of both actually and I think 
how do we reinvent journalism? How do we make it sustainable in the future? I think it's, you know, making sure you report what people want to see and not, you know, very trivial stories that we do see um, sometimes uh, from outlets. But it is, you know, really difficult to do that if, you know, you're not getting those readers out there. You know, you need to reach them. You need to make sure that you can actually engage them. Uh, and it's not just print. It's the BBC, it's ITV, uh, it's S4C. You know, I think that, you know, news and current affairs isn't the way it should be at the moment in Wales. I think, you know, maybe you'll have a different view or you'll agree with me. But I think that it can be better. Uh, I interviewed Rodri Tarzan Davis for the Media Society at the last event. Who is, of course, the head of BBC Wales. Yeah, and we sort of had a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a tussle about um, news and current affairs, I think. Uh, I have strong views about, you know, how we get that better reporting, not just sort of, there's lots of this, this, this is sort of current format, just getting people from the general public in and just asking them questions about politics, and it's not very entertaining for anyone, I don't think. Um, but yeah, it's a very difficult time, very volatile, uh, but that means you have to get the right people into journalism, uh, and it starts right from, you know, how they're being taught, but also are they doing postgraduate programmes, are they doing internships, or, you know, it's such a complicated issue, but I think with things like the Media Society, for me, it's about stimulating uh, those ideas. Of course, one of the big ideas that the BBC has had over the recent um, few years, probably the recent decade, is um, more engagement from members of the public. So they want people to tweet at them, they want them to send them messages uh, saying what their opinions are. Uh, I mean, I have to say that my view is, and you may agree with me or you may not agree with me, that when it comes to matters relating to political policy or whatever, I want informed opinion. I'm not interested in the views of somebody that I could speak to in the street or in the pub who may just be sounding off and have probably some kind of ill-informed anti-politics perspective. And I think there's probably a bit too much of that sort of thing going on. And um, one of the problems, I think, is that um, with some of the political programmes that they've been dumbed down so that instead of getting informed opinion, you're getting worthless opinions which are put forward mm. um, because of the necessity, as um, broadcasters like the BBC see it, of uh, getting the ordinary person's point of view. Yeah, I think, I, I do agree with you. I think for my reading of the BBC, not just with my you know, academic interest, but generally, you know, it's, it's just, it gets so, it drains on you a bit to sort of see the culture of it sometimes and how they actually try to deal with things, and other broadcasters as well. I think that I would rather have these experts of controversial opinion uh, these days. Um, and I'm reminded of uh, the Harry and Paul sketch, you know, uh, we won't listen to any of your tweets or anything like that, and we won't read any of them out. But I think, you know, we need to sort of have that debate about, you know, do we want to have those politicians as experts on there? I do. But also then, you know, what do people want to see as well uh, I think it's all good for us to say you know we'd rather have experts but I think you know we look at the general public they want to have a go at politicians a lot and I would rather actually have those programs where we have not that many experts on there there are no political programs at all really which I think is somewhat the case here in Wales I think we've got a complete lack of debate and engagement uh, you know I think we've got the sharp end as one program which is on at about midnight every <laughs> every Monday or Tuesday whenever it's on that will engage a couple of thousand people probably. I think it's about 8,000 people, I'm not sure. And that is such a bad thing for democracy. You know, look at now all these elections, that you're, the leadership elections you're covering. People aren't watching them on TV because there's no 
forum for them to engage in, really, or a, a forum that is actually a mass forum for people to look at. The BBC have been doing that in Wales, I think, with Wales Live. Um, you know, and I, I'm, it's, it's, it's something that you don't want to be too critical of because you don't want to just say, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, this is rubbish. But there needs to be a better way, like there was perhaps with something like the Wales Report, I'm a big fan of, um, that could make sure that you have those opinions. Yes, you can get you know, the odd young person in or the you know, pensioners not happy about you know, different things and to talk about stuff, but I think that we need to make sure that we have a forum there in the first place for us to engage with. Now, bringing things right up to date in a sense, but going back uh, a little in another sense, you're involved in a campaign to get a statue of Jim Griffiths mm. in your hometown of Llanelli. Jim Griffiths, of course, was the first Secretary of State for Wales, and he actually made a, a big contribution, but he, in many circles, is largely forgotten. How did you get interested in him? Well, like I said, I was with Portland Communications uh, this summer. I had a really good time, you know, learned about all the good things that they do and, you know, how to run campaigns and how to engage people. And I was back for a, about a month and I thought, what can I do <laughs> in my spare time? Some would read, some would just, you know, lay back. But I thought, I'll do this campaign. And that really stemmed from months of discussions with my mum, really, uh, because her uh, mother, my grandmother, had talked publicly about having a statue for Jim Griffiths. Uh, she had said about 20, 25 years ago on some sort of BBC programme that we needed to have a statue. And really I thought, from me reading about Jim over the last year really, nobody knows who he is. No, there's not one young person I think in internationally that will actually know a lot about him. And I found that with me talking about him in, in politics. I've written a few articles now as well in the media and it has generated interest. You know, it, 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 it's something that has been really pleasing for me, more than, I think, anything that I've done, actually, because it's something that no one's really criticised because, you know, you can't really criticise a sort of a pleasant campaign like this. Uh, I don't know if that statue will happen. I don't think it will because the funds are tight for most things these days. But what I think it shows uh, is that people do remember these people for our past. You know, you've written that book recently on George Thomas, and that's made us think a bit more about his life and his career. Not as uh, as pleasant, perhaps, as Jim Griffiths' life. But I think what it also shows is, it, is the embarrassment, really, from particularly the Labour Party. Because I'm not a member of any party, but the Labour Party itself. You know, why have I had to do this, you know, something like 40 years after his death, where they've completely forgotten about him, really, I think. And I think it probably goes back to the fact that he was a bit of a... Uh, character, you know, he he stood up for the Welsh language. He campaigned for devolution in Parliament uh, for Wales in the 1950s. No one else was really doing that at that time. And I've spoken to people like Winora Jones, former MP for Carmarthen, who's been on this program as well. And you know, they say the same thing really that he was a very very um, pr uh, principled man. He really believed in things and went for it. And I've listened to these stories from people. And I think it's so important to remember him um, for his contribution. It's strange, isn't it, that if we look around at our public spaces, very often it's the case that the people who are remembered and who are uh, lauded, if you like, uh, with statues are military people from the past or people whose reputation, perhaps, when examined, doesn't deserve that kind of accolade. Mm -hmm. I mean, one that I'm thinking of is uh, Sir Thomas Picton, who was killed in Waterloo and uh, came from not very far away from Mertlemetli, mm. actually, but uh, was a governor of Trinidad who was absolutely brutal, and yet close to where I live in Cardiff, there's a street named after him, there is a school named after him in 
uh, Pembrokeshire, and uh, he would be regarded uh, as somebody who um, was the best of mm. Wales, if you like. And yet, when you examine their career more, you find that that isn't the case. And yet, people who deserve more, or perhaps including Jim Griffiths, are forgotten. Why mm. do you think that is? Well, I think it's difficult. You know, that example is something I can maybe relate to Oxford in terms of the Cecil Rhodes controversy we, we had. It was the Rhodes Must Fall campaign to, you know, Rhodes was some sort of uh, colonial, you know, horror show, really. And there was much debate in Oxford about whether we should take down the statue of him outside Oriel College, and a lot of black students talked about it. And really, first of all, on, on whether we should do something about that, I think it's difficult because it is a part of our history. Whether we should honour them is another thing. I think Jim... Uh, himself really was not somebody who perhaps would have you know, cried for a statue of himself. I think Marion Bevan perhaps would have been very pleased that he's got a statue in Cardiff. You know, two different men completely. Uh, but I, and I've made the case that you know, Jim Griffiths is just as significant, if not more significant to Wales than Marion Bevan was. And I think they were two different people with two different ideologies, really. There was a more of a Wales-focused uh, belief with Jim Griffiths, whereas I think Nye Bevan had more of an international socialist belief and, you know, doesn't need to bother with Wales, we'll just transform the whole country uh, together. I think it's down, it's down to the character of these people. I think Jim, in what he did, um, you know, being the first Secretary of State for Wales, uh, which is seen as maybe his biggest achievement, but then also look back at what he did with Attlee and the, the Attlee government, and, you know, introducing things like the Family Allowance, the National Insurance Act, things that we still sort of treasure today. And I think it's remarkable that you know, even journalists, to some extent, don't know who he is. And if this campaign has done anything, uh, and it's been very targeted in terms of, you know, getting media coverage and getting people to talk about him, it's raising awareness about Jim. And I think if I've been able to do that, that is a good start. And then maybe, you know, Labour parties, you know, left uh, centre uh, groups, but also the population as a whole will actually think, well, we need to honour him in some way. Now, um, on your website, you just oh no, oh no, <laughs> you describe yourself as broadcaster, oh, journalist, and communicator. Dumb. From which I take it that you're looking for a career in the media. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> I need to delete that website. I think now after you've been going through it. No, um, I was thinking, yeah, what's the best slogan I could have, Martin? Um, maybe a career in the media. I'm not sure. I think you know my whole life so far has been more media oriented because it's very hard to be very political at 20 unless you get a seat and you go on and do things. I would say I think I am drifting towards uh, public life or public affairs more now because I don't think, in all honesty, that I'll actually be accepted into massive media companies anymore because my demographics don't work, even though, you know, and I don't think I'm posh or anything really, but I just, as a white middle-class guy from Oxford, I don't really suit that sort of environment anymore. Maybe I don't in politics either. But I think I would like to, you know, represent people locally, particularly in Tenetley. You know, I, I'm not afraid to say that I'd you know, love to be the MP for Tenetley. It's not going to happen in the next two or three years, but in the future, I'd love to go out there and represent people. But at the end of the day, Martin, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's their choice, really, not mine. Uh, so I'll have to see how it goes. Is he graduating next June? Yes. Have you got uh, thoughts about exactly what you want to do? Oh, well, uh, I think, you know, it's difficult because I obviously, I will, you know, look at all the different options. I will probably aim for you know media companies and their graduate schemes and you know, whether I get in or not is another thing but I think I might have to go off and raise a bit of money first actually Martin considering all of these different uh, <laughs> costs for running as an MP or something um, but it might not even come to that I think for me I'm still exploring what I actually believe in I haven't got a party that has you know either 
reached out to me or I haven't reached out to them because I haven't really appealed to it. I think I've had to think a bit more about, you know, what I actually want to contribute in, you know, uh, however short or long my life is. I think I'd like to do a bit more, not just running off to London and getting a nice seat and doing, having a good time. But I think here in Wales, there is a sort of a need now for politics to change. You know, we've had 20 or so years of Labour in, in the Assembly. And whatever your politics are, you can't say that that's a healthy thing. Uh, you know, recent, you know, books you wrote, um, you know, the poor man's parliament and stuff like that. I still think it's the case. And it's not just about what powers you have, it's the people. Uh, I think there's a lot of people there that are punching well above their weight uh, in ministerial positions, but also as AMs. There's lots of good people there as well. But I think I'd like to contribute and do something uh, for Welsh democracy and make sure that we have investment, we have you know, better schools, we have a health system in Wales, which people respect. I don't think uh, we have that. Um, so in whatever way I can contribute to it, whether it's you know, as an investigative journalist such as yourself, uh, whether it's as an MP, whether it's as an activist, uh, we'll have to see who takes me in and uh, is very wary of my uh, different creative abilities. We'll have to see. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.